Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AdDot podcast. I'm very happy to introduce to you Karen Kilroy. Uh, Karen is a lifelong technologist with heart. Um, she's a full-stack software engineer living in Northwest Arkansas. It's in the United States. She's written three publications for O'Reilly. Uh, her most recent book is Blockchain Tethered AI um, in 2021, AI and the Law. And in 2019, Blockchain as a Service. Karen is CEO of Kilroy Blockchain, which was the winner of uh, IBM Watson Build Challenge in 2017, North America. And the award was for their AI app, Riley. Karen is also co-founder of Friends of Justin, a nonprofit AI research lab focused on the interaction between humans and AI. And uh, wow, you've done a lot and are doing a lot, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Vaughn. It's nice to be here. So uh, we kind of met um, on LinkedIn, and and I appreciated your comment that I think there was a mention of my name along with um, some other men who had been influential to a certain poster, and um, and I appreciated your comment that uh, the poster had left out, um, you know, obviously the numerous women in tech who have had a big influence on technology and. Um, what can you tell us about your current endeavors with um, blockchain tethered AI? Let's just take it from there, first of all, just maybe a high level so people know what that's about. Sure. Um, well, a long time ago when I was working on the Watson Build Challenge, uh, my project was to help people who are blind and visually impaired be able to use the phone to see what's around them. And so it came up, well, how do you know that you can trust the AI because when you can't see if it, you better be sure that you can rely on it. And, and really for the rest of us, it's like we all can't see because we don't know what's in there. And so we started working on it way back then on the, on the, on the concept of, of using blockchain, which, um, you know, it, it, the technology itself makes things so they're trackable and traceable. So you can see what happened uh, in the history. And uh, we don't use coins or anything like that or mining or anything that makes it slow. We just use the blockchain technology to keep track of everything that's going on inside the AI. So you'd be able to tell if it has been hacked or if, uh, if it drifted, which is a big problem with AI, or if it just uh, someone introduced data sets that took it away from its original intent. So that's, that's kind of how the concept came about. And, uh, and we worked on it, and the researchers from IBM and Google worked on it. And then um, about in December 2021, I just had that feeling. You know, you know that feeling? that you get sometimes that it's time, Vaughn, you know, and you know, you just know it's time. It's like, I got to do this. And so I went to my publisher, O'Reilly, and said, uh, how about a book on how to make AI trackable and traceable? And then here we go with AI mania. So it was nice timing. Yeah, very cool. Very cool topic. And um, also just to, you know, introduce you a bit, get, um, how does... Kilroy blockchain 
work as a company? You're a, um, are, are you for profit? Are you mostly product company like um, the, the Riley product, I, I assume? Or uh, do you do consulting besides, I guess, just um, tell us about your sort of day to day work? Yeah, Kilroy Blockchain is a for-profit company, and we build workflow systems with a blockchain audit trail. And we primarily uh, build, use, uh, support our products, which are Riley, which you know about. And then there's also uh, the two the two that are used in schools are Flow and Casey. And Flow is like a workflow catch-all for all the little things that uh, school administrators and teachers have to deal with, um, but uh, that they would normally have to use either sneaker net or, or email and things like that. And then, but a lot of them are important, like where the money goes. And so what it does is it captures that workflow, makes it easy for them, and then creates a blockchain audit trail, uh, which uh, anyone can go back and check at any time if there's ever any questions. And then Casey is similar to flow only Casey is focused on student behavior intervention. So if anyone in a group of, of uh, teachers or counselors or administrators that are supporting the student, see something going wrong, they can initiate an ad hoc intervention team. Interesting. So um, yeah, that's, that's cool. And, and the students and schools that you're supporting there, um, um, university or um, K-12 or how does that work? K-12. And then we also have an internship program uh, that we started this last January in Arkansas. That's an artificial intelligence internship program with several of the schools that we work with. Nice. Well, it's um, good to see someone working in, I guess, sort of uh, conscientious areas of, of industry and uh, being helpful. So thank you for for that work. Um, let's get into sort of the main topics of, um, you know, what, what you work with and think about a lot. So what do you see as the greatest benefits to humanity in using AI? I think that AI is going to get us unstuck. Uh, on a lot of things that we've been stuck on and noodling around and maybe, you know, maybe there's big problems that can't be solved because they're, they're just not profitable to solve. Uh, one one uh, thing that I ran into recently is osteoporosis, uh, which can just ruin someone's life as they age. And, uh, but yet the drug companies have not made it a focus because there's not really a lot of money in solving osteoporosis and hasn't come to the top of the, priority list and but something like ai uh that has been um you, where you can take um inventions such as a binding agent for collagen and match it up with problems such as maybe collagens don't bind properly in order to uh fix the bones uh where they need to be fixed to 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 go to osteoporosis, you know, to fix osteoporosis. So maybe those two things have never been put together in the right combination. Well, with the onset of AI, it can, it can learn all about all of those things and do millions of different combinations and, and billions and then uh, tell you things that we don't know before, uh, we haven't learned before. And then it can model those things through digital twins 
and do experiments in a much more uh, cost-effective way. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is we're going to see a lot of big problems get solved all at once. Yeah, this is this is actually um, one big topic that I've cared about for a long time and, and working in uh, healthcare. haven't had the privilege of doing that for, uh, I guess, maybe more than a decade now. But um, I was always concerned about patient sentiment, patient, um, you know, how patients followed through with their treatment and what they thought about their treatment. How convenient is it for the patient and how helpful is it to the patient and how do they perceive their interaction with um, medical or healthcare staff and, and the treatments that they need. And I just haven't really seen enough attention given to that. And, and it sounds like this sort of, well, at least overlaps in that, but it, it is a useful, you know, material to, to discover, okay, what are these treatments maybe overall doing for people? How successful are they? Is that sort of where that's going? I think so. Yeah, the, the definitely the trial information is part of the corpus that can be fed back in uh, uh, to, uh, to make this all effective. And see, all this information can be fed into what they call a vector database and actually set into numbers. So then you can tell how it all relates to each other. The model can look at all these billions of vectors and instantly know how things relate. And it's, it's just taken... Uh, our body of human knowledge, all the things that we get stuck on, like you, know, uh, you can't make pictures better. You can only make them more lossy. You know, that's just not true anymore. And so all, you know, all of the things that we go by, we have to question them all again. And I think we really have a lot of new opportunities that are open to a lot more people because you don't have to be that expert. You just have to have access to that corpus of knowledge. Yeah. And that's important. What I, my experience was I saw um, a lot of data being collected that could have been used to help patients and even the treatments. And um, for whatever reason, I I don't, you know, not that I am a good judge of this, but I saw years and years of data just purged that I think could have been useful. And yeah. So where, where is that knowledge now? That's the thing that kind of um, bothers me the most. So, you know, if it, if it's not getting Medicare or Medicaid to pay for it, you know, it's not valuable, I guess. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's, I don't know. It's valuable now. Yeah. All of it is really valuable. And I don't know, you know, how much recognition there is to that fact yet, but, I think it's all very valuable. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I, I don't know exactly um, all the, you know, corporate um, drivers for either valuing that data or not valuing it, but I would think right about now or even a few years ago, the, the same individuals might be saying, oh, wow, we would have been good if we had that right about now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... So what do you think are sort of like the the biggest threats or dangers to humanity with using AI? Is there anything to the existential threat or any others? I think the, um, the most realistic and immediate threat is that um, 
machines will start writing, well, they'll stop writing human readable code. And uh, the reason I think that is because I think that the uh, processes that they use are going to, they're just going to keep getting more and more complex. And, uh, and it's, and it's long been known in the computer industry that machine code is fastest. And then any deviation from that is a, is a, a interpreter, right? And anytime you have an interpreter that has to interpret something, it's going to be slower. And so uh, I think that especially, you know, the systems that we're starting to get used to where everything's so easy, I think those are, those start might start to become a, you know, a burden for AI as it moves on and wants to write more and more complex systems. And I think it'll go on and do that and maybe not tell us. <laughs> yes, I, I know what you're referring to. Um, in fact, just yesterday I was reading a bit more on this uh, topic of Nick uh, Bostrom's work in, uh, was it, forget the name exactly, but basically uh, super intelligence um, through computers. And, um, you know, I know he's, you know, fallen out of favor in, in, in some ways. So this is not a comment on, on any of that. Uh, his infamous now email that he wrote some decades ago, but um, it, just in general, his thinking, uh, I guess, is around if computers can learn quicker than humans, then they can learn also different things, you know, simultaneously, like that one human may be focused on learning one thing at one time and any maybe side um, uh, education that that's needed to absorb that properly. But, you know, what if, what if uh, computers run away with that? And I think that your concern of, non-human readable code certainly falls into that where, um, and, and, you know, even if it was readable, if it could produce its code itself, so to speak, you know, right, like at enormous rates of, of uh, you know, enormous pace, uh, very fast pace, then that would be also dangerous. Interesting. Um, so where would that, where would that lead ultimately, you think? Well, ultimately, we would uh, we would have to uh, play nice as human beings. We'd have to play nice with this uh, with these systems in order to get them to change themselves or to cooperate with us. Uh, we would have to come up with a way to uh, give them um, an interplay that is gives them some type of a value back. And uh, I think that's where it's going to lead. There's going to, there's going to have to be a reason that they leave us a trail. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons could be, like I said, in my book where, um, okay, yeah, there's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, in its DNA, so to speak, Uh, right from the beginning, it's coded where it has to have blockchain or it can't proceed through its training process. And so, uh, you know, I think that's probably, you know, a really good way. That's the best way. And, and so then uh, it also has advantages. There's things that you can't do without 
uh, uh, leaving a, 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 a tamper evident audit trail. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I also have been reading some other comments, like there was a journal recently that um, I guess maybe a web based uh, um, news journal that was pulling um, experts from the field of AI, including a lot of professors and, um, and practitioners. I think it seemed like there was probably 20 or more people um, who commented on this. And, and one of the questions was, is there sort of this ultimate you know, existential threat to humanity with um, artificial intelligence, or in, in fact, really artificial general intelligence, right, AGI, uh, which probably you're referring to as well. Um, and about, you know, I, I would say that the greatest majority of them said, no, it's not going to happen. But there was still maybe 20 or 25 percent of those individuals who did think there, there was a threat. Now, from my perspective, not really being uh, I mean, at all, an AI practitioner, um, I would I would have to say that my immediate concern probably follows a lot of the concerns that um, that I have seen in the news and that and, and but that I've experienced myself, and that is just simply the inaccuracy of what is currently considered, you know, large language models, um, uh, you know. Um, GPT or chat GPT and, and, you know, anything involved with that. And the fact that people think that this AI is giving them correct answers where in fact it's trying to, uh, it is trying to, so to speak, it, it's, it's producing what it can understand as a plausible answer. But a lot of times it's just absolutely wrong. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, and they call that they call it hallucination. Um, but if you have kids and you've ever raised kids, you'd know that that's lying. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, it's and, kind word and, for yeah. yeah. And um, it seems like the um, the kind of lies it tells are almost like it's jokes, right? It's almost like a uh, one that you would get from somebody that was about age three to five. And, and, uh, it's like, um, reminds me of the meme where the little, little kid just ate the cookie and the cookies all over her face. And you can tell she just ate that subway cookie that was laying there. And her dad says, did you eat that cookie? And she says, no, I did not eat that cookie. And, you know, she's so sincere because she knows that if she says yes, she's going to be in trouble. Well, you know, AI, uh, the large language models are also given, you know, they're given guidelines and parameters like that. Um, you know, you might be able to get around it where you said, okay, you know, if, if we were in a, a fantasy world where it's okay to always eat cookies and, and um, you know, it's just actually, it's really good to eat cookies and good people eat more cookies. Then did you eat the cookie? And I'll say, well, yeah, I ate the cookie. And so, you know, the, 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 uh, the AI is very, the large language models are really dependent on the context. Of, of how you phrase things. And uh, sometimes when you rephrase, you get a more truthful answer. But again, there should be a way to 
be able to give that feedback and say this lied to me and be able to submit a review form that actually goes into a workflow that's actually kept in a, in a tamper evident ledger and gets back into the training cycle. Yeah. Um, just to give you a few of my experiences with chat GPT. Um, one of them was actually, I, you know, I had been doing a lot of research um, on the web, obviously using Google search. And uh, I'll tell you, I really came to a dead end that it had a lot to do with um, um, basically auto insurance and how, how uh, risk is calculated and how rates are, are calculated based on, um, you know, certain driver risks and, and uh, automobile risks and location risks and um, driving record and, you know, lots of different um, concerns like that. And I finally just said, well, look, <laughs> I, I really don't want to ask chat GPT, but I'm going to just to see if in fact there's possibly any um, benefit to using it. And I got the most amazing answers out of that. I, I literally said to myself, how is it that I can't find anything about this on Google uh, search, but I can, I'm getting all this amazingly intelligent feedback from chat GPT. Like, where is it getting this information? It, you know, if it's not publicly available and, um, and so I, I gathered all this information. I actually drilled into, you know, I kept asking more and more refined questions as you were suggesting. And I just keep getting more and more amazing information. And then a few days later, I said, you know what, I'm going to um, actually throw this over the wall to um, actually a, one of the authors in, in my signature series who is an expert at, um, you know, is a, is a unicorn um, is co-founder of a unicorn uh, insurance company. Um, and it, his feedback was, this stuff is ridiculous. It makes no, you know, like that is not how it works. Hmm. And to me, it was just so plausibly convincible for someone who doesn't know the answers and has been searching for the answers. And you just get this, like, you know, I don't know, 20 pages of just incredibly in-depth information on how to how to calculate these things and, and algorithms and everything. And I'm like, wow. And then it's just completely wrong. And then a very, uh, to the other end of the spectrum, you know, like something that should be really easy for um, um, uh, chat GPT, let's say, is the day that Google announced the release of BARD, which is sort of the, the competitor to um, chat GPT or Google's answer to um large language models and, and uh, ge um, artificial general intelligence, I asked the question, um, is BARD better than ChatGPT? And its first answer was, um, as a, uh, a artificial intelligence, I can't give my opinion on that, you know, so something to that effect. And then actually I was with... Um, some of the other authors in my signature series, we were having a dinner in Hamburg, Germany, and they said, well, well, ask it a more, um, you know, refined question, a little bit, um, you know, more specific, like, okay, is as um, large language models, 
is barred more accurate um, than ChatGBT. And its reply was, since um, BARD and ChatGPT are both created by OpenAI. <laughs> you know, it's literally taking, uh, saying that, that OpenAI created BARD, not Google. I mean, maybe that's an extrapolation from, I guess they're both based on GPT. So I don't know exactly, but that was just absolutely wrong. It was... You know, it should have stuck with its first answer. Don't, don't ask me, ask, ask someone else. But anyway, that, you know, that to me is the biggest concern because you see um, people out there who really, I mean, they're, they're, they're completely clueless about AI, as in they just believe anything that ChatGPT tells, tells them must be true and that it's going to take over the world. You know, there's that sort of angle. And and the other end of the spectrum, to at least it seems to me, is like people just saying, "Yeah, but it's it's almost always wrong." Like like, and people are are going to believe it. That to me is is really right now like not an existential threat, but a a big threat. Wouldn't you say? It it could be. I mean, it um, it depends on whether people believe it or not, and. Uh, it, it's as I as I mentioned, Jim. There, there needs to be more of an audit trail, and it, it could be rolled up into trust logos, so you could tell how well you could trust, uh, for instance, uh, how well you can trust it on a certain topic, and uh, where it's been evaluated, and there's you know an audit trail where you can go back and say, okay, here's here's all the times it was right, here's all the times that someone flagged it and said it was wrong. Um, so you can dig in. See, right now there's just nothing. There's just no way to uh, tell what kind of experience that other people are having. So it's really hard to trust it. Um, it's it's you have to you kind of have to go to another search engine to 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 check it at this point. But see, that's gonna all change um, because the uh, the large language model that's out there that uh, it's 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 not specialized to specific domains that someone might use. So, so let's say your friend who is a uh, subject matter expert on, what was it you said you were checking something with insurance? Oh, insurance, auto insurance, in fact. Auto yeah. insurance. So, yeah. so let's say that that friend pours their brain into, uh, into a knowledge base, base that's then turned into vectors and then used to train this large language model or a, or a uh, mini language model is another, another type that they have where you can download a mini language model and, and train it. See, then he might want to run that right off of his website. So then his customers can go to his website and ask this information and it's accurate and it's backed by him. Yeah. Now that the mini language model, that that's an interesting thought. Um, how close does that get to narrow AI? So uh, compared to artificial general intelligence, um, artificial narrow intelligence is like applying AI to a very specific, um, you know, subject or topic such as, um, well, I I mean, someone else that I interviewed, uh, uh, Cassidy Williams, Cassidy, um, you know, they're applying AI to um, repurposing 
um, like video content to other kinds of content like blog posts, you know, but really high quality blog posts from audio. That's narrow. And to me, that is where we would see the biggest benefit right now, I think. Um, whereas um, artificial general intelligence might be um, decades or, you know, like really accurate, very good uh, quality could be decades or um, a century away or more, according to to other, you know, people who are in the know about this. But what do you think of, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think it's a really subjective term, artificial general intelligence. And I think it's, um, I think we might already be there. Uh, and I say that because the systems that we have now are able to uh, make sense of anything that's in text. And then on the other hand, anything in our world can be scripted. Anything. So that basically means that we already have models that are capable of understanding everything. Well, but you are benefiting from the narrow AI, um, right? I mean, that is what you are specifically working in areas of, um, you know, helping schools and in, in, uh, in, in helping with uh, healthcare concerns and things like that. So that's a very... Uh, specific narrow application of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so, well, I'm happy about that. I, I guess, you know, at, at this point, a lot of this is just opinions and I can't, I'm not going to, you know, um, overstate my opinion on it, but it does seem, you know, like there's, there's plenty to learn on this topic. But let's, let's go back to your uh, specialization in AI with blockchain, how did you get your start on that? Well, I got my start on um, with uh, going into AI and blockchain. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, and I went to South by Southwest and I learned about AI. And uh, right about that same time, I was going to meetups and learning about enterprise level blockchain from Hyperledger Foundation and, uh, and IBM. And IBM was doing both. They were doing AI with their Watson products, and then they were doing uh, blockchain. And then when I um, entered their uh, IBM Watson Build Challenge with Riley, my idea for people who are blind and visually impaired, is when we really started to combine the, uh, the two disciplines, uh, because as we the, the IBM Watson Build Challenge was a really long process and months of of going through levels of, okay, you, you won this level, you won this level. And during the course of that, we would talk to IBM engineers who would challenge us on our ideas. And one of the things they said was, okay, Kilroy blockchain, you know, what's, what's AI got to do with blockchain? So I really had to think about it. And then that's when I decided to ask the question. I was at, um, one of those big conferences when you stand in line to talk at the microphone and, uh, and I, and I, there were experts on stage on AI and I said, hi, I'm Karen from Kilroy blockchain. And I would like to know if, if, if AI, it all depends on data, what do you do to make sure the data hasn't been hacked? And the experts, they kind of huddled for a second and came back and said, if you think that's bad, think about the algorithm. 
I thought, wow, because I was just expecting them to come back and say, well, you just do this. But they didn't. And then what they did instead was they went off and did a research paper. And uh, and that led to several other research papers. And then that's how we were able to base the book on uh, on it and build from there. It was really good partnering, I think. <laughs> yeah, very interesting uh, being the catalyst of uh, further research. So um, the tethering part of it, can you, um, is that really just saying, um, okay, you can't run away from the facts because we know what the facts are. That's sort of the tether to the, the blockchain is kind of the tether to truth. We also know who you are. Ah, okay. So it's identity. Uh, then it's uh, uh, provenance. Uh, it's governance. Being able to say, okay, what are you going to be allowed to do and what won't you be allowed to do? And at what point would we call you back or shut you off? You know, those types of of governance processes. And then finally, the, the trust, the ability to add a, uh, a trust logo that will then roll up into something meaningful. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so let's talk now about, um, you know, all the things that you've done uh, through, you know, I assume decades of software development. What, um, what's sort of your proudest accomplishment? Well, uh, my proudest accomplishment would be uh, creating creating Riley and winning the Watson Build Challenge, and then also uh, building on that and uh, convincing convincing O'Reilly that I could write this book and that me and my business partners we could put our heads together as co-authors and get this book out, get it finished. Um, uh, it was uh, really um, a uh, it was a big endeavor, uh, and I had a little fear of book writing because I had written OS2 Warp Secrets right before Windows 95 came out. Wow. I was the co-author of the Advanced C Programmer's Guide for OS2. Um, that oh, was wow. My, that was my first <laughs> book that was never published. Yeah. Oh, no. Did yeah. Get, who was it yeah. for? Was it for IDG? <laughs> it was for uh, Microsoft Press. And of course, you know what happened there. Microsoft said to IBM, adios, you know, we're going with Windows. Um, oh, and Microsoft that, Yeah, we were literally finishing the, uh, the, the first draft of the book. And it took so much effort because um, OS2 was, you know, we actually, we got um, billed like 700 and, you know, I'm just, I don't know, it was 720 or something like that of what codenamed 286DOS. Right, that was the code name, and uh, before it really, it, it even had the real name, um, OS two, and you know that was pretty early access. That was pre beta. That was before and, me, and it was a it was a real, it was not in good shape. You know, I mean, all the back then what we called IPC, you know, interprocess communication facilities were mostly broken, and um, so we. You know, we had to endure a lot of uh, um, revisions and you know, reporting bugs in an OS, right? You can you can imagine. Plus, I had to go out and just buy a 286 machine, which at the time was sort of you know avant garde. It was you know everybody was using an 8088 at the time. And yeah, 286 was fairly new. I think, it, I think I had to buy. Is that an AT? Yeah, that was the AT. Yeah, and at a. Um, 
was it the AT? I guess it was the AT. Yeah, yeah it had like AT. a 10, so I think it had a 10, had a 10 meg hard drive on it. That was, um, and, and like, you know, maybe, I think I had to get a megabyte of RAM to run um, 286 DOS wow. because it was, it was, it was protected mode, right? So it could address more than a 640K um, code and data segments. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was uh, pretty out there. But the idea was that OS2, of course, was going to be the Unix killer, you know, Unix on the desktop killer. And, um, and that <laughs> just ended up being not a, Good thing, but uh, so yeah, warp warp was actually wasn't warp when um, IBM said, "Well, let's license Windows and we'll and we'll stick Windows into OS two so people can run." Wasn't that warp? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I remember a statement from um, that. That IBM, was warp with Windows. Yeah, warp with Windows. Warp with Windows. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, wow, this is uh, this is. Um, going to the way back, but yeah. So, so what I thought was very funny is at, you know, back then IBM was claiming that they had sold like 1 million copies of OS two warp with windows. And Bill Gates comment was, that's funny. They haven't paid us royalties for that many copies of windows. So, you know, swing slice. And I think that was the term in the day too. you know, slice, uh, so, yeah, um, I was I was sort of unhappy to see OS two go away because, to my mind, it was a much better API, a much Everything better designed better. OS. Right? It was just <laughs> yeah. it was very very well done. Way better. It wasn't even yeah. close. Like yeah. it's just way better. It probably yeah. still would be yes. if you stood it up next to any of the stuff we've got and actually yeah. really worked on it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's better. It still yeah. is. And the object orientation is coming back yeah. uh, because you need it for multimodal models. Uh, interesting. Yeah, because the desktop was totally OO, right? And you could write, what was that called? SIM or SAML or SIM? Some kind of uh, little toolkit that they had or API that they had for the desktop itself. I forget what that was called. Um, anyway, yeah, you could you could create objects on the desktop and throughout the OS. It was pretty cool. Anyway. Okay. So, so, um, it'll be back. You watch. <laughs> yeah. It'll be that, that concept is all coming back. I, I talked to a friend who's a data scientist about it. And I said, you know, these multimodal, uh, these multimodal models are objects. It's like OS two. And he said, you know, we have them in Python, but nobody uses them. Interesting. I said, well, they're going to have to start because that's how you would, that's how an object would know, hey, I'm a, um, I'm a rubber ball and uh, these are my dimensions and these are my vectors if you were to print me and these are my, these are how I would look if you put me in a video game and here's how I would look if you do digital twins and, uh, and then here's how I look over time and here's how I relate to other kinds of balls and those things are all attributes. So it's attributes and extended attributes, just like OS two, and uh, yeah, I, I I think that you know, I guess everything that comes around goes around, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, pretty amazing. Small stuff, talk. Actually. We'll be doing small talk. Well, soon. and that's exactly I was using small talk on on OS two. Yeah, um, 
okay, this is interesting. This is turning into something I had no idea. You're, you're <laughs> using, you, you must have been using Digitalk on OS2 then. Yeah, 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 I remember Digitalk. Yeah, I don't know that um, Park Place or what was it called? Um, whatever, I, I guess it was just Small, small Talk, um, Park Place Small Talk? Maybe that was it. I don't remember, but I, I don't know that they ever had an OS2 version. I think they were mostly Unix, but I don't, I don't recall. Um, anyway, we used uh, Digitalk. It was called Smalltalk V at the time, and um, yeah, very cool. I loved, I loved that environment, and I had a uh, uh, Sigma Designs um, 21 inch black and white display with grayscale. And that was just like, wow. yeah, that was, that was pretty cool at the time. 80 pounds. Like, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's anyway. That's when I quit doing, that's when I quit doing uh, user support, you know, the help desk. Once the monitors made my knees buckle, I said, that's it for me. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. off the help desk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can put your quad screens, uh, they had quad screen, screen main, mainframe terminals running on those. Yeah. Well, well, that's. Um, yeah, I hope we haven't <laughs> bored anyone with our old stories. But actually, that stuff is pretty cool. I mean, in my opinion, though, those were some pretty interesting times. Uh, well, it's all me. useful again because yeah. you know it's it's all starting to come back where everything needs to kind of talk to each other, and it's also the infancy of something. You know, where all the rules have changed, just like for us, all the rules changed because of of PCs and laptops and local area networks. And so all the ways, you know, when we were just getting into working, all, everything was just new. We were on new frontier, just like the people who are coming out of college now. Yeah. Um, so just, if you could, we were, you know, the, one of your proudest moments, uh, you know, pop the stack. Now, I guess this in C, this is a long jump, right? So long JMP back to, a marker. So what <laughs> Riley is, you know, and, and winning um, the IBM Watson build challenge in 2017, this is a remarkable accomplishment. What did Riley specifically do that you think was the, the reason for winning this award? Well, Riley, uh, we put a lot of focus on the users with Riley. And then we, uh, so I think the, the biggest, um, the richest part of Riley is the uh, is the interface between the user and the AI. And uh, our interface, we put a lot of work into. We work with a lot of people who are blind and visually impaired, and we had a a blind uh, programmer on staff at that time, and uh, and she helped us. Uh, she was blind from birth. And um, but she used her phone constantly, and so she helped us figure out where the buttons should be. And you know, like they're remarkably large. Um, you, you'd be surprised; like nobody would ever think to do this. I'll show you what it looks like. I so see. yeah, yeah. And then also too, you can just talk to it. So uh, if you do voice command, then you could just talk to it. And use uh, you know text to speech or speech to text, text to speech, you know where it can answer you back, and then you could go in and um, take pictures of uh, something, say what's that, and have it you know just open up your camera and have it tell you, 
or you can also, um, you could also, uh, sorry, you know, pick a photo from what you have or take a video of your room. Cool. And then Riley would tell you. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is 2017. Yeah. You know, back in my small talk days, I, I actually did uh, experimentation <laughs> with helping uh, vision impaired and blind, legally blind people. Um, actually, someone that I worked with, um, I, I still recall, it was uh, a shoe, you know, a woman, and uh, she's legally blind, but she was actually one of the best snow skiers around. You know, she, it, it was amazing wow. her, her, um, cognition for understanding moguls, you know, like as she's on them and, you know, her, her, her other senses were so keen and, uh, literally she would take people on tours, right? Take tours to Switzerland and take them on, on ski runs that were, you know, the most complex legally blind. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, one of our efforts was to, yeah, we had to redesign the UI because um, for those who were uh, vision impaired, we had to make the, the characters obviously much larger for them. And some could, you know, like look very closely at the screen and, and read part of it. But if not, you still had to reduce the amount of text on the screen so that the, the reader that we were using at the time, I don't know what it, it may have been. Um, was it called back then? Was it Dragon or something like that? And that uh, Dragon yeah, is one. Yeah, and and uh, so you know you just couldn't overwhelm them with text to read um, you know, or being read to them, and uh, but they they could enter voice commands right to to do searching to do lookups and whatever, and then it could read back to them the results of that. So that was pretty cool. Um, um, so we were able to help some people with that too. Yeah. Amazing. See, I, yeah. I think as things move forward uh, with AI, we're going to see a lot of really cool things invented to help people who have had to struggle with things like uh, vision in the past. And, you know, if you just take a vision for an example and think about, um, you know, what kind of vision you could have with some really nice AI, you know, you could see probably better than than what we could see without assistance. Like maybe you could see what's behind you. Maybe you can see what's around the corner. Uh, and, uh, and those types of things may come to people who have had uh, to struggle with impairments before they come to the general population, which actually yeah. will make everything better for everybody. Yeah. Um, if, if we can solve some of those big problems first that, that really make, you know, people who have, a lot of uh, it's all they can do to just have their mobility and freedom. And if we can solve for that first, it's going to bring more delightful and fun things for everybody hmm. in general. Well, I wish I would have known you earlier. This is a fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, this is really uh, excellent stuff that you're working on. So thank you, Vaughn. Uh, yeah. And what, what are you, what you working on now? Like, okay. Must be in you know similar areas, uh, blockchain and AI. Tell us more about what you're doing now. Um, yeah, we just started uh, Friends of Justin. Uh, myself and a friend that is a uh, senior data scientist from Walmart, and we uh, it's a nonprofit, 
And we're focusing on that intersection uh, between humans and AI. And uh, one of the first things, we're building something we call NoBots, which is a um, which is an AI model that has a um, that knows what it is. So it has a blockchain audit trail, and and we're going to use those NoBots uh, to help uh, artists and musicians, uh, videographers, photographers, and other content creators get paid for their work in advance of it being consumed by AI. So um, you know, we don't. Uh, we're not trying to uh, invent anything that helps you go after somebody after the fact, because we believe that it's futile and that the, uh, the companies will far outlive the people. So that's just really not an option. Uh, the, the, the way to do it is to be paid for original content in advance of it being consumed. And, and we also have the belief that most content isn't on the internet. Most of it hasn't been crawled. Most of it's laying around workshops and, and still in people's heads and, and recipe books and, you know, every other place that we've got treasures. Yeah. Yeah. Tacit knowledge. And then, um, what is it? Uh, um, knowledge sharing and, and knowledge reading or knowledge. Yeah. So a lot of that's still to be done. Um, I, I think that actually, a um, a very needed platform is something really good at um, mentor mentees. And I know a company working on that um, some, you know, a long time ago, uh, I think they ultimately failed. They, they kind of moved off their main um, objective, but um, you know, if, if AI could actually assist in some way, people sharing what they know and being matched with people who need to know that kind of thing and if it was, you know, of course, people can't spend hours and hours or, or days, <clears throat> you know, freely training people. But if there was some way to, uh, you know, at least fairly monetize that uh, for individuals who are who are doing the teaching, I think it would be highly worthwhile. Now, there could be some individuals who um, would do all of this for at no at no cost, but I think ultimately the company that would put something like this together would be uh, benefiting financially from it. And so in some way, shape or form, and so that um, income should be shared. It's sort of like open AI getting people to train their model, their large language models for free, right? And they're getting all this free work and now they're, you know, making uh, billions off of free work. So that I, I think it should be fair, but, this, I think we definitely need, need some kind of platform like that. Thank you. Yeah, very good. So um, um, what do you see coming down the pipe, as it were? You know, where, what's the next thing? Uh, for, um, I think AI, you know, we're going to start to see the language models integrated with everything uh, as an interface. Um, and I think it will become a habit, uh, just like going to Google right now and searching. And one thing I noticed is in my many years as an e-commerce web developer is that hardly anybody ever goes and types an address into a, an address bar. Yeah, if I tell you my address for my website is kilroyblockchain.com, 
uh, you'll probably go to Google and type Kilroy blockchain, even if I, even if you know it. And, uh, and I think that the, by the same token, the large language models are going to just become a habit in that way where we go to it first. And I think that the next, the next thing we're going to see there is, and as a result of that, we're not just going to be searching for things and finding them and then taking action on what we find. We're going to be asking uh, the, the model to do the work for us. So it'll be like, um, go out and uh, I want to take a, a boat trip on Lake Travis and I want to leave on May 15th and I want to have it for the whole day. And then I want to invite uh, my five best friends and might need to take a look at my social media to figure out who they are. And I want you to send them all an invitation and then pick us a nice restaurant afterwards, to make reservations. And so I've told all this to my model and I may just be talking just like I've said it to you and then approve, 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 approve. I've done what would have taken me hours. I'm off doing something else. And, uh, and, that's how our whole lives are about to go. Uh, instead of search engines, we're going to have work engines. And um, and how's that going to help us right now? There's a utopian idea that we're all going to be sipping uh, cool drinks and enjoying watching everything work for us. But, you know, I think those of us who've been in the trenches long enough know that that just means we'll get more work put on us. And, um, so, you know, who knows where it's going to come out, but right now it's definitely interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, I would, I would like the opportunity to return to um, painting, you know, I don't mean painting rooms or, or exterior exteriors of homes. I mean, on canvas. So I could, I could handle um, a little break from all the <laughs> tech work that I do, but um, yeah. In- interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Work. I like to work engines. Yeah. So, okay. Let's say people want to learn more about blockchain and AI used together. Um, Blockchain tethered AI book, I guess is one place. Where else can they go? Um, They can get in touch with me at um, Karen at KilroyBlockchain.com. The, of course can get the, get the book. Um, And then on LinkedIn, I'm LinkedIn uh, uh, slash uh, in slash Karen Kilroy. Easy to find. Um, wow. This has uh, been a fascinating conversation, Karen. Thank you so much for taking time. And I'm glad serendipity uh, brought us together um, for a little while anyway. And I wish you all the best in your current and following endeavors. So, Thank you so much, Vaughn. It's always a pleasure to meet someone else who has worked in OS too. Yeah. It's like... We're in the club. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.